Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It can be found in your pew Bibles on pages 830 and 831. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will, set you, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master Answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless ser- servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of Let's pray together. Those are the words we long to hear spoken over us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I'm asking now, Father, that you would grant that we could experience a beginning of that entrance this morning. I'm asking that you would take your word that you promise us is living and active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that gets in even 
deeper than we understand, that gets past all of our defenses and excuses, that is not in any way impeded by our logic or our brains or our defenses. The, the, the word that is living and active because it's your word, the word that reads us because you read us that you would take this word and, and wield it in each of our lives as a, as a great and healing scalpel, gospel scalpel, that you would heal, that you would cut out cancers, that you would cut out thoughts and pretensions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God, that you, as the the great healer would come and use this sharp sword that gets in to restore us. We pray for a saving work and not only a healing work, but a saving work to be done through the same word. Now you would come today and make this the day of salvation for many. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, in Matthew 25, um, Jesus uses uh, three illustrations, and they're very different on their face, and he uses them to illustrate the implications of his uh, second coming. And, and it's interesting because these illustrations on their face, like I said, they're very different. Uh, on the one hand, the first one we looked at last week was this parable of the ten virgins, which where, where Jesus is using the picture of a wedding procession or a wedding party to explain the implications of his second coming. And then the second illustration that he uses is the one we're looking at sort of this morning. And that's the parable of the talents. And that's a, pic, a very different kind of picture. This is a picture of a master's accounting of his servants. So that's kind of financial. And then the third picture is really not so much a, a parable, although it's often called the parable of sheep and the goats. That's not what it is when you read it. It's actually a very vivid picture of what the last day is going to be like, and it's a, a royal courtroom. We're out of the parables. We're out of the illustrations, and now Jesus is painting a picture. And the royal courtroom and all of humanity is going to be before the throne of Jesus Christ. And that humanity is going to be divided by Jesus Christ. And for all of their differences, and we should note their differences, but we shouldn't let their differences blind us or obscure us to the essential similarity that binds all of these illustrations together. And that is that in each one of them, they, the outcome is a division among people. That, that Jesus ultimately is picturing this ultimate division among people, those who are in his eternal favor, those who are enjoying his eternal favor, who are welcomed in the, into the enjoyment of all the blessings of eternal fellowship with him. That's the one hand. And then on the other hand, there are those in each of these stories, right? This division is very stark. There's no ambiguity. There are only two categories. And on the other side of his favor, there is the side, the division of humanity that, that will be under his disfavor and excluded from eternal fellowship with him. 
And in each of these stories, this division turns on works that are either done or undone. So these three parables confront us, or these three illustrations confront us with an issue that is at the heart of the gospel and about which there is much confusion among Christians. And that's the relationship between God's grace and our, God's saving grace in Jesus Christ and our works. So this is the question I want to think about this morning, because unless we are clear, uh, unless we lay the right foundation of what the gospel order is for the relationship between God's saving grace and our works, unless we are clear about that, we will not understand these illustrations. And these illustrations are utterly critical because Jesus is using them to teach us how to live wisely and faithfully until his return. Friends, there is a humongous difference between saving grace, the real deal, and counterfeit cheap grace. These are not the same thing. Um, Cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer, if you look at the reflection quote this morning, cheap grace uh, is a term that you will hear sometimes. It's a very helpful term. Because, and Bonhoeffer uses it, and what he's describing is a kind of lip service grace that doesn't really change us. It's a grace in principle that doesn't really ruffle the feathers of our status quo. But you know, the grace that actually saves sinners, the grace that God uh, pours out upon sinners, that draws sinners to Jesus Christ, that grace is not only does it ruffle the feathers of our status quo, it is a complete revolution. It is regime change. It is a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat of our priorities, of our values, of the way that we think about ourselves and how we invest our lives. Cheap grace produces passivity. Cheap grace does not result in great activity for God. But real grace yields a harvest of great activity. Think about the way the Apostle Paul describes himself or describes this relationship in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But I am what I am by the grace of God. Okay, we get it, Paul. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Okay, we get it, Paul. You are who you are by the grace of God. But the next thought, do you remember what the next thought is? Right? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Well, what would it mean for, your gra- for God's grace to be in vain toward you, Paul? The very next thought, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you see, in Paul's mind, saving grace produces hard work not in order to be saved, but precisely because he has been saved by grace. Hard work needs to be a big and beautiful category in our brains and in our hearts. 
So this morning I want to think with you about the relationship between God's saving grace and our works under three headings this morning, this gospel order. The first is that Jesus Christ saves us from our works. The second is that Jesus Christ saves us by his works. And the third point is Jesus Christ saves us for works. From works, by works, for works. If you don't have all three of those in your understanding of the relationship between saving grace and works, you've left the gospel order. If you don't have them in the right order, you're out of the gospel order. So let's think first about how Jesus Christ saves us from our works. And this is one of the best pieces of news I could ever share with you. Jesus Christ saves us from our works, my friends. It is a trustworthy statement that deserves our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners by saving them from their works. And what I mean by that is Jesus Christ, and we should be so grateful for this, because Jesus has come to save us from the duty of works as being the root of our reconciliation with God. And we need to be saved from that misunderstanding, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but in the middle of it and all the way to the end. The gospel means, my friends, that there is nothing, there is nothing I can do, there is nothing I can become, and there is nothing that I can achieve, that can compensate in whole or in part for my rebellion against God. Nothing. If I think that I can, you know how moralism always works? Moralism always raises the floor and lowers the ceiling of reality at the same time. It raises the floor of human achievement and it drags the ceiling of God's holiness down at the same time. The gospel never does that. The gospel opens up the magnitude of that gap. In fact, the longer you're a Christian, the bigger that gap becomes in your sight. And the more you see that though this ceiling is infinitely beyond your reach, and though the floor of your achievements is lower than you can ever conceive it to be in the sight of an infinitely holy God, God crosses that chasm to save us from our works. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, which is on page, i got to remember, I wrote this down for you, page 998 in your pew Bible. Titus chapter 3. Let me show you what I mean. So let's, let's start at verse 4. And we, I think this was our assurance of pardon last week. Uh, I love these verses. They are so beautiful. Now look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and the word, it's very interesting, the word that Paul uses that's translated loving kindness in the ESV is literally philanthropia, God's philanthropy, his love for men. When God's love for men, he's the ultimate philanthropist in response to our sin, but when the goodness and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, what did He do? He saved us. 
You see, the result of our being saved is not, that the predicate for that is not, and when our goodness and faithfulness to God finally materialized, He saved us. You see, the origin is in God. When the goodness and loving kindness, the philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And just to make sure that we understand it, Paul is very clear. He eliminates now any misunderstanding, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You see, precisely 0% of salvation, 0%, friends, comes from works that we have done in righteousness. Zero! So where's the 100%? But according to His own mercy. 100% of the reason that anyone is ever saved, is in the heart of God. We have to be rescued from our floor-raising, ceiling-lowering blasphemy. We have to be rescued from that. And God sends Jesus in the world to do that. Do you know what the heart is? I mean, the gospel is so amazing because... God assaults us in the gospel. He assaults us in the gospel in order to comfort us with the gospel. Do you know what the hardest thing in the world for human pride to swallow? It's the same thing that is the sweetest thing for human failure to taste. It is the gospel that there is nothing I can contribute to my salvation on the basis with, with my deeds. The only contribution I make to my own redemption is the sin from which I must be delivered. That's it. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of works, not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Zero percent your works, zero percent my works, a hundred percent His works. That is the hardest thing for my pride to swallow, and it is the sweetest thing for my failure and my weakness to taste, that the root of salvation is a hundred percent God's gift and zero percent my work. And yes, as we're going to see later in this message, it's true, it's true that when that root of God's sovereign grace is genuinely planted in your heart, it will not fail to produce works. But friends, just as fruit doesn't plant a root, good works don't compel the root of God's sovereign grace to be planted in your heart. When you 
and I genuinely receive this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, when we have genuinely received the salvation that cannot be earned, do you know what it, that cannot be earned by any except Jesus Christ? When you and I receive the salvation that is totally beyond the earning of our works, guess what happens in the heart? There is born by God's Spirit in your heart the yearning for good works. Because how could you ever not desire, having received grace like that, to want to live a life that is pleasing to a king who would give himself for you in every respect? It's beyond our earning, but when we receive it, it births in us this yearning for good works, which is exactly what Paul is describing. We just need to admit it. In the Christian life, there, there are often long and regular bouts with insanity. How's that for a witness to my non-Christian friends who are here? But let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, it is so easy to fall back into the trap and the lie, because this is the way the rest of the world works, of thinking that somehow, of thinking or feeling or, or acting as though our standing with God depended on our performance at all or even partially rather than on Christ's totally and exclusively. There's there's an insanity that we suffer from when we blur the distinction between our justification and our sanctification. There's an insanity that we indulge in when we simultaneously underestimate, uh, when we overestimate our works, we raise the floor and we underestimate Christ, and we lower the ceiling. That's insanity. The insanity of thinking that, what, that we have any reason to hope based on what's inside of us or what we are or what could come out of us in our achievements. We, we all fall into that trap. Now, friends, let me, let me invite you to turn now to the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is quite a whirlwind tour this morning. If you pull out one of your hymnals, one of the red hymnals, and you turn to page 857, I want you to say, I can't say it better than the Westminster Confession says it. And when I, when I begin to think that I, I can, it's time for me to get taken into the garage, okay? So if you go to page 857 in the red hymnal, you'll find uh, chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, which is called Of Good Works, okay? And I just want to focus on on, on uh, paragraph 5, Roman numeral 5, because this explains it so well. And particularly if you're a non-Christian who's here, um, I, I know that it, what I'm saying sounds uh, crazy at some level. But, but the reason it sounds crazy is because you don't yet have in place, in your mind, a vision for the greatness of God. Because if you ever think that your works could somehow satisfy God, that means that you, your understanding of his greatness is that he's not as great as the Bible says he is. And your understanding of the problem of our sin that needs to be overcome is not as deep as the Bible says he is. But look at how the confession explains and summarizes the Bible's teaching. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. 
And now the confession goes on to give three reasons. First, I mean, why can't our best works merit pardon of sin? Reason number one, by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to, and the glory to come. Do we really think that we can earn eternal life through our temporal works? And he goes on to say, and the infinite distance that is between us and God. See, we, we try to make this manageable by raising the floor and lowering the ceiling. Whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. God, God is not impoverished and we cannot enrich him. But when we have done all we can, when we have done our best duties, and now the confession uh, quotes uh, Jesus uh, from Luke chapter 17, verse 10. When we have done all we can, we have done but our duty because we are creatures made by God who by definition, the very constitution of our existence, we owe God our obedience. We've just but done our, our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because, this is the second reason, as they are good, our best works, to the extent that they're good, they proceed from His Spirit. They're His, if they're good works that come from us. And three, as they are wrought by us, our good works, they are defiled and mixed, so with much, mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Friends, the gospel is good news because it means that we are freed by Jesus Christ from the burden of having to be our own good news. If you think that your works are what is going to turn uh, redemption and reconciliation with God, that it's the energy and the excellence of your works, my friends, that is going to overcome the burden that is upon you as a creature who is estranged from God because of your sin, then you have taken upon yourself a burden that you cannot bear. You cannot live up to the burden of being your own good news. And you don't have to. Because God has sent His Son into the world to save sinners from their works by His works. And that's our second point. Jesus Christ saves us by His works. And He does this in two ways. First, by accomplishing redemption for sinners and then applying having that redemption that he has earned for sinners applied to particular sinners. So let's think first about the, the work of Christ accomplished and, and just the biography of Jesus. Because Jesus is more... See, Jesus is not like other, uh, other religious figures because Jesus is more than a teacher, Right? He is a teacher, but Jesus does not, does not, is not content to simply say, nor is the Bible content to simply portray him as somebody whose teaching is authoritative. He does not say, I know the truth, I know the way, and I can point you to life. He says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that unless 
your him, unless you have his biography as your biography, you cannot be reconciled to God. So at the heart of the gospel is this great wonder that Jesus lives a life and dies a death, fills out a biography as a man, and through that biography accomplishes redemption for sinners. By his works in life and in death, he accomplishes as a man for men all that is required under God's law and in a way that honors God's holiness and that doesn't raise the floor and lower the ceiling, but that fills all in all as it actually is to be the way of salvation for sinners. You see, Jesus is the apex. He is the apex of God's affection for sinners in the affliction of our sin. He is the climax of God's action to rescue sinners like us from the affliction of our sins. In both his person, just his being and his work, he is, Jesus is the good work. He is the good work that against which all other works are measured and he is the good work that saves sinners. So let's think first about his life, the saving power of Jesus' life, this biography. Remember, at the heart of the gospel is this great wonder of this exchange of biographies. You see, what happens at the cross is Jesus lives this perfect life. He is obedient. In fact, Romans says, uh, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 18 that Jesus' whole incarnate life was one act of righteousness. One unbroken act of righteousness. One unblemished, untainted, undefiled, a single, integrated, whole act of righteousness. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's so pure, so undefiled, no taints, no cracks, no flaws at all, so that, so that Paul, when he's describing the whole life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he says, you know, you know what the summary of Jesus' incarnate life was? It was one act of righteousness. The reason that sounds so strange to us is because our experience is so choppy. But Jesus, there were no seams in his obedience. It was perfect. It was like one movement from, from the first moment of his incarnation all the way to the cross. Because that's what God requires. It's not just what he desires. It's what eternity requires. And so that life lived through temptation. See, that, that seamless, singular, undefiled, unbroken act of obedience was not uh, lived out in a laboratory or in an ivory tower, but through temptation was proven, right? He was tempted. I read this again this morning in Hebrews 4. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. His life was not easy. His life is way harder, was way harder than any of ours. 
way harder. The temptation that he experienced, you and I give in when temptation does this to us. We tip over. Jesus endured temptation and triumphed over it. And so when he got to the cross, he did that so that when when he was ready to make that offering at the cross, he was able to present what was crucified to the cross was a perfect biography. Perfect. Something you and I will never have apart from him. Something that you and I can never achieve or accomplish apart from him. It is utterly beyond our reach, my friends. And we do not have to achieve it because Christ has achieved it for us. If we put our trust in him, what happens at Calvary is that this holy biography is given in exchange for us and he receives our unholy biography and is judged in our place at the cross. He bears all the consequences for the unholy, defiled, broken, polluted, contaminated, sinful biographies that every single one of us has lived. And if you trust in Christ, friends, the gift that you receive under the gospel is that God in his sovereign grace exchanges biographies for you. So now what happens is we look at the cross and Jesus, every consequence that we dread of our sin was judged in in Jesus on the cross because he was made our sin. And God actually poured out his holy wrath upon Jesus. But friends, if you trust in Christ, if you are in Christ, when God poured out his holy wrath upon Jesus, don't you understand if Jesus was made your sin there by God's grace, all the things that you dread about your own sin, God has already answered at Calvary 2,000 years ago. How awesome is that? And then all the perfection of that unbroken biography, that seamless single act of obedience has been reckoned by God's grace to you at your conversion. So that now for purposes, for purposes of all the business that you might transact with God and all your relationship with him, you carry and are marked by the truth the way, the life. Jesus' biography is the ground on which you deal with God now, which, which is what you are importing every time you pray in Jesus' name. There's only one saving biography in the universe. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And the only way that anyone receives it is by the sovereign grace of God. No one has the right to be a Christian. To be a Christian is the gift of God. And you will know from beginning to end, you will know that the sovereign grace of God is bestowing this gift of union with Jesus Christ upon you. When your heart is broken 
over your sin. Not as a flaw, not as an imperfection in yourself, not as a, hey, I failed to be the man I wanted to be, but as an offense against God. And you see it for what it really is. Cosmic treason. It's not just you failing to live up to your own standards for you. It is you consciously, deliberately, in every area of your life, belittling God and denying his rightful claims over you. You will know that God's grace is active in your life in a way that is drawing you so that he might give you this gift of salvation through union with Jesus Christ when you begin to see your sin for what it really is. And when you begin to see, when it begins to dawn on you that here in Jesus Christ is the only possible answer for your sin and that answer does not come from you, it comes from God. And so you become desperate in a way that somebody who is hungry and, and, and thirsty is desperate for food and, and drink. You become desperate in a way that somebody who is ill is desperate for healing. And you become uh, relentless in your pursuit of the one, the only one who has what you need, Jesus Christ. And you will spare no expense or effort. You will hold nothing back from the one who held nothing back from you. Friends, Jesus saves us from our works so that he might save us by his works. And having saved us, the gospel also means that Jesus Christ saves us for works. I was thinking about John chapter 15. Jesus said something very interesting last night of his life before his crucifixion. He's with the disciples in the upper room and he he says, do you remember this? He says, John 15, 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, Jesus has this passion for his disciples to bear fruit in a way, right, that proves who he is. And that's a really important thought. It's a thought and it's an emphasis that gets carried out through the rest of the New Testament, not just from Jesus, but all the apostles, that there is this direct connection between saving grace and good works. Saving grace always produces good works. Right, Jesus says, right, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. There is no category in the mind of the New Testament writers for a Christian, someone who is genuinely born again, in whom the root of God's sovereign grace has been planted by the Holy Spirit. There is no category for somebody who is a Christian whose life does not bear fruit. James says it this way, faith without works is dead. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, and that's on page 976 in your pew Bible.
By the way, I, I want to make sure that you understand that when I'm talking about floor raising and ceiling lowering, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm pointing it at me. Okay? I've been a Christian for 33 years. And by God's grace, and this is a daily recalibration that needs to happen in my life multiple times. And it is, it, the, the urgency and intensity of that has been increased as, I, as, as Jesus has called me into ministry. So I'm not talking to you as if I think this is somebody else's problem. <laughs> this is my problem. This is every Christian's struggle. Okay? And, and, and simplistic pat answers for this kind of stuff. Listen, we're supposed to love God with our minds, Right? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So what that tells me is that what it means to know God and what it means to be saved by God is that my mind is going to be set on a, on a quest by the grace of God to think hard about Him. And to think hard about what He teaches this should not be the place where our minds shrink. They should be the place where they expand. So look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. This is a lovely verse, right? And very profound. For we are his workmanship. And literally, the word that's translated in the ESV, workmanship, is a poema. We are God's poem. He's composed us in Christ. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. He composed us, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did He bring us into union with Jesus Christ? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the four at the beginning of the verse is so important because it connects what God just told us in verse 10 with what has happened in the immediately preceding context, which is really verses 8 and 9. And what Paul has ta taught us in verses 8 and 9 is, is something very familiar to us, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, when God saves a sinner, he saves a sinner in such a way that it's by grace. And why is it by grace? It's to remove any room for human boasting. So no one can tarzanically beat their chest and say, I got it. Tarzanically, new word. But we kind of do that, don't we? And what Paul is now saying in verse 10, with the verse 10 for, is that is that now we see that there's no room for human boasting, not only before conversion, but also after conversion. So, so it's not like, Paul is, being, Paul is being very careful to paint an accurate picture of the Christian life. So it's not like, um, it not, it's not like uh, God, God saves us by grace, and then all of a sudden, uh, right, there's room for human boasting after we've been saved. No, the whole thing, justification as well as sanctification, is the fruit of God's grace. But we have a role in responding to the grace of God that requires exertion. We need to walk 
in the good works that God prepared beforehand. Do you notice how Paul is not struggling? He's not, he's, not, uh, he's not in anguish here. How do I explain the relationship between God's sovereignty? I mean, God prepared us for these works, and God prepared the way beforehand, and, and I need to tell him to walk in. Oh, how am I going to do this? He just says it. Of course. You know why he says it this way? Because he understands he. He understands the way who God is. He understands what it means to be a human being. There is no ability we have. Friends, even our ability to sin comes from God. The ability to conceive sin is sustained by Now, that's mysterious. He can sustain it without approving of it. He can sustain it without being the author of it. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, but there is nothing that any human being does that a human being can say, well, all of that is mine. You use an intellect to sin. Where did the intellect come from? You use your body to sin. Where did the body come from? Why does it still exist? Why are there any molecules? So what Paul is saying, friends, is that there is no no basis for human boasting after conversion. But verse 10 is this amazingly lovely picture of the after of conversion. This beautiful after of conversion of the gospel in every Christian's biography. Before conversion, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Before conversion, we were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. And through the gospel, God makes us spiritually alive and unites us to Christ. He takes soil that was contaminated, that was polluted by sin, and he has replanted our lives in the soil of Jesus Christ, and he brings forth, it's literally an act of of recreation, and he brings forth fruit. It's so lovely. Look look now at at our, uh, well, well, if you turn to Titus 2, which is uh, on page, let me see, page 998, in your pew Bible. We see the same thing. Uh, Paul's emphasizing the same thing in Titus 2, which was also uh, our assurance of pardon this morning. So Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. I just want, what I'm trying to do is show you how consistently this is emphasized throughout the New Testament. Okay? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, the grace of God, when it comes, it transforms our lives, produces good works. It trains us. It disciples us. The grace of God just doesn't get us into the kingdom of heaven and then leave us alone. The grace of God that appears, that brings salvation to us, also trains us. While we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, there is the same connection that Jesus is making in the illustrations in Matthew 25, that, the, that good works are how you wait for the coming of Jesus. We're to use the time wisely. 
And now Paul explains the gospel. Look at this. Who gave himself, now speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us. Now notice two purposes now. Number one, he gave himself for us. Number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So that's justification. Number two, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's sanctification. And so what's, what, what Paul is describing is that when Jesus went to the cross, my friends, he went to the cross for the express purpose of setting us free from the consequences of our sin. And one of those consequences was the judicial consequences before God. And he set us free by paying that penalty. He redeemed us from that part of our lawlessness. But he also went to the cross for the express purpose of redeeming us from the contamination of our sin. And what Jesus wants is for, you see, his giving of himself at the cross was the greatest good work that could ever be done, right? This is the greatest work. This is the only good work. And Jesus, what Paul is saying is that Jesus intended in doing that good work for his bride, that that good work would then beget in his bride, in his people, a like-mindedness about good works. That Jesus went to the cross for the marriage of what, of what Shakespeare calls the marriage of true minds, that Jesus' mind, which was zealous for the good work and good works, would beget in us, his people, a comparable zeal for good works. And he says the same thing in, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Just look a little bit down on the page. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you, notice the, notice the urgency. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Now, this amazing two words. In other words, he's talking now in context about salvation by grace that we looked at earlier, verses 4 through 7. Right, that when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because, not on the basis of works, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So that's the immediate context. And now in verse eight, He's saying, "Now make sure that you insist on these things. Make sure that you teach them about salvation by grace. That salvation is zero percent." because of works that men have done in righteousness, and 100% because of God's mercy. Teach them that over and over and over again. Why? Look at verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see that? In Paul's mind, the logic of grace is anyone who understands salvation by grace Anyone who has really believed in, in that gracious God and trusted in his gift through Christ, guess what the so that fruit outcome will be? That life will be careful to devote itself to good works. You see, for Paul, there is no option. And if you and I are living lives that are careless about good works, then, then, you tra- then read it backwards. You're not believing the gospel 
that actually is the only gospel. Friends, this is important. It's important because what's at stake is the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Friends, good works as fruits of the gospel of grace are about the triumph of Jesus Christ in the world. If you think back about uh, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. I mean, think about the way that God is describing you, my Christian brother and sister. I'm talking to you now exclusively, for we are his workmanship. Paul is amazed by this, right? What that means is that, is that the Christian, do you understand, my Christian brother and sister, do you understand the meaning of your life? The meaning of your life. You are God's workmanship, which means that you are evidence of the triumph of Jesus Christ in the world. God created everything, and it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Right, And then sin came into the world. He put man and woman at the apex of his creation. That was all good. But through those very image bearers, right, sin entered the world. And through sin, death. And it looked to the naked eye like sin had won and God had lost. And what was God's response? What were the options that were on the table for him? He could have annihilated his creation. He could have walked away from it. But what did he decide to do? No, he doubled down. He unleashed more goodness into the world. All the more, in fact, Romans 5.20 says, right? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the logic of the heart of God. And God unleashed that goodness. Ultimately, the crowning apex of that goodness was in the gospel of his son, in the achievement of his son, the ultimate refutation of Satan's lie. Remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve, how he snookered them in, God's, he basically made them question the goodness of God. And God has vindicated himself in history by doing the greatest good work of all, giving his son. And you and I, my Christian brothers and, si- and sisters, we are living proof of God's triumph. We are microcosms of that macrocosm. God has won and God's victory is going to be celebrated for all eternity. And Jesus Christ will be the honored center of that honoring. And until we reach that day of his return, my friends, our lives are intended by God to show to the world and to be understood ourselves as microcosms of that macrocosmic triumph of God. And good works in our lives are at the absolute center of this. We, it is not enough, according to the vision of the New Testament, for Christians to simply describe the triumph of God. The lives of Christians are designed by Jesus Christ to transcribe his triumph into the world. Through good works. And when we live as Christians, without a zeal for good works, we are transcribing a misleading message about Jesus. You know, Paul's exhortations in Titus 3 have uh, sobered me as I've thought about them. We who have believed the gospel must be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And this devotion to good works, he says later in verse 14, has to be learned. That's really interesting. 
Again, these images of discipleship and training for good works. And, and this makes me think uh, about the church. I, I, th- this has applications, of course, beyond the, the, our life together as a community. Absolutely it does. And we're going to look at those uh, more next week when we look at the parable of the talents. But for now, I want you to think, I want to narrow the focus, and I want you to think about the, the implications of the gospel for us to do good works inside our community as a church. Remember, I've joked in the past about how we are not a gym. This is not a gym. Okay? And I'm really glad you don't dress like it's a gym. But this is not a gym in, in this sense. Why do I have to say that? Because a lot of people think about church as a place where they go to pursue their personal spiritual growth. Okay? And you do it within the sight of people you like and you recognize. But really, you're just here for yourself. So it's not a gym. And we're not a grocery store, okay? A place where you go to get a product you want. We are a congregation of the people of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, now that has profound implications. That means that we are the household of God. That means that we are a family. And think about how you run your house and how your house culture works. If somebody in your family goes into their room and closes the door and keeps it closed and doesn't come out, that's not a sign of health, is it? And none of us in this church has the right, or in any church, has the right to go into our rooms and close the door behind us. None of us has the right. I mean, we are in a family, right? This is not, when you go to Publix, you have the option of not going down every aisle. When you're in a church, you don't have that option. You don't have the option of overlooking people, and neither do I. You don't have the option of retreating from people, and neither do I. You and I don't have the option to show up whenever we want, to participate to the extent that it's convenient for us. To only think about what's in it for us. To show up when it works, to not show up when it doesn't work. You don't think that way about anything else in your life. Why would you think about it in relationship to the one organization that you're part of that's going to last forever? The one. There are chores in the family home that need to be done, and all of us need to be doing them. We cannot sit idly by. There are good works that Jesus Christ, the King of our church, is calling every one of his people in this church to do. And no one gets to opt out. Now, you're like me. You listen to the news and you watch the news. And I think one of the most interesting statistics that I have heard repeated over and over and over again for the last couple years is that there are about 46 million people on food stamps in our country. Now, I've heard a lot of critiques about the significance of that number, a lot of them. But you know what, and you probably have too, but you know what I've never heard any of the critics about that number say is none of them, I've never heard any of them say that there shouldn't be anyone on food stamps. What I've heard them say is there are too many on food stamps. Of course our society should be in a position to offer people help. Okay? 
But the issue is, for the critics, is that there are too many on food stamps. In other words, that there are many who are receiving food stamps whom the critics would say are able-bodied and they're in a position to work and be productive. And so by just remaining on public assistance, they're shirking their personal responsibility. Well, I need to be really honest with you. I think it's possible for somebody to live inside the church of Jesus Christ and to be content subsisting on the equivalent of spiritual food stamps. I think it is possible for somebody to live on the inside of the visible church of Jesus Christ and turn Jesus' logic around from Acts 20. You know, Jesus in Acts 20 says it is better to give than to receive, but I think it's possible for people to live inside the church, turning that motto around, saying it is better to receive than to give. I think it is possible for somebody to live inside the church hoarding their own resources, hoarding their time, hoarding their creativity, hoarding their industry and their exertion, hoarding their ideas, hoarding their hands, hoarding their feet, hoarding their mouths selfishly. I believe that it's possible, just like the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews said, that it's possible for somebody to be in the church who ought to be a teacher by now, but who has come to need someone to teach them again the basic principles of the oracles of God because they prefer a milk-only diet. It is possible to live inside the church and not be zealous for good works. But this is not the way of our master. This is not the way of the gospel. Sure, our culture has discipled us to think of ourselves and is still discipling us to think of ourselves as consumers. And and yes, I will grant you that the church, for its own part, has been often a willing co-conspirator with that nonsense by presenting what Christianity is and what it means to be a Christian simply in terms of an agreement to a set of beliefs or a body of truth, that this is all it means to be a Christian, that you pray this prayer or you believe this checklist, and the church is guilty of speaking to people about conversion without bringing in the, the rest of the New Testament teaching on the costs and necessity of discipleship. Yes, the church is guilty of that. But you know, Jesus is not guilty of that. The Lord Jesus Christ is discipling us in a completely different way. And he's discipling us to embody the truth and trust it to us until his return, both inside the church and from his church into his world. The gospel, my friends, as we've seen from Ephesians, as we've seen from Titus, and from 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel produces in people who have genuinely been rescued from their sin by God's grace, a big and beautiful category in our brains for hard work. Work that announces the triumph of Jesus Christ, that displays that he is victorious, that we are his workmanship, created by God's sovereign grace for the displaying of his triumph and his goodness in the world. And how could we not be glad to be used to such an end? Let's pray.
Lord, I pray now that in each of our lives, you would pierce through to the point where we are, each of us, being called to repentance concretely, specifically. And that you would, as you pierce us to that point, do so with that gospel scalpel so that we see that the very grace, the wonder of grace that pierces us is also the same grace that will heal us and strengthen us to move in a new direction. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.